Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a fourth grade teacher, PhD student at Utah State University, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. This podcast is about bridging literacy research into practice. Every episode, you'll hear from a literacy researcher about their work, why it matters, and how to turn it into practice in your classroom. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. It is great to have you with us for another fantastic episode. I hope you and your families are well and healthy in the midst of COVID-19 and that your work is as productive and influential as ever. I'm very excited for today's episode. I have a great conversation with Dr. Derek Tolfson and his wife, Cassie Tolfson, about building resiliency in students. Dr. Derek Tolfson is professor and head of the Department of Sociology, Social Work, and Anthropology at Utah State University, and Cassie Tolson is a veteran fourth grade teacher at a local school. In this episode, we talk about how we can teach about the brain's eye system to students using the concepts of big mind and small mind. We also talk about what big mind and small mind behaviors look like in the classroom and the benefits of teaching students how to self-regulate. I think every teacher out there sees a need in their classroom to help students be more resilient because when we help students be more resilient, uh, to borrow the words of Dr. Derek Tolson, we can help students meet the imperative of the moment. This is such a fantastic episode with so many great takeaways for your classroom. Uh, Please enjoy the conversation and make sure to stick around after the show for my two cents. Derek and Cassie Tolfson, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I'm curious, how did you both first become interested in supporting student resilience in the classroom? Well, I'm a teacher, so I think that's just a natural thing to have happen. So I'll let Derek answer that one more. Well, I'm married to a teacher, <laughs> and uh, so I, I kind of bear witness firsthand to uh, the struggles that teachers have uh, to know how to to help their kids who who are having uh, so many serious mental health issues and just emotional regulation issues it's it's very very difficult for them to do their job uh, when when a child's in that in that place so um, my my background with this work has really been mainly with adults but became very interested in in applying it to children because of what I've what I've seen and with Cassie and her colleagues. And so this is such a, a unique opportunity because we sort of have, you know, an individual who's familiar with with the research and uh, you know more of the academic side with it, and then a person who's very, very familiar with the the pragmatic side of it of how it actually uh, you know works works in the classroom. So we're excited to have both of you on to talk about it. Teachers are probably gonna be trained to ask what's what's the evidence base for this and so i think it's important that i speak to that real quickly that mind body bridging has a strong evidence base with it in the adult population so it was it's been listed on the federal substance abuse and mental health services administration's evidence-based practices website so there's there is a big body of research with adults um this is our first trip into 
specifically adapting it to youth, but we have every reason to believe that as you know, as long as our our method of adapting it so that it's accessible from kids, that we'll see the same kind of results that we've seen in adults. And there's been trials run with cancer patients, pain management, sleep disorders, substance abuse, addictions. I've actually even applied it with uh, domestic violence offenders and survivors, and that's family violence is kind of my background, and and I've published on its application there. So there is a good evidence base, but we're really interested now in rolling out rolling out some trials in schools and and collecting some formal data on it. But so I'll just say that with complete transparency. But I I can already see from the maps that 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 we're seeing that we're going to we're going to have some amazing results. We're talking about resilient minds for schools uh, for students, you know, kindergarten through sixth grade. And there's a lot of other mindfulness based approaches uh, out there. What does this specific approach that uses mind body bridging offer that might not be found in other mindfulness based approaches? Well, mindfulness based approaches really focus mainly on what we would call sensory awareness practices. So being in touch with your body and 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 connecting to the world around you through your senses. And so that is a that is a big part of mind body bridging. But but what those traditional programs lack in our view is what we call the metacognitive strategies or in other words, skills that that kids can develop to really help them to actually need their need to go to their sensory practices less and less over time as they as they apply the the metacognitive skills and and come to come to see what really is triggering them in the first place and and being able to deal with that i guess at a more at a more base level rather than at a symptomatic level yeah i would say because i have i've put in mindfulness practices for years in my classroom and this is really the first year that i've really done the mind body bridging stuff and it it's been a it's been very different than just the mindfulness practices. I feel like the kids have like um, grasped onto it a lot more, and they seem like Derek said their metacognition with it of really understanding it and be able to take it deeper than just being having mindful activities for them, mindfulness activities. Um, it's been it's been very different. I feel like it's been much more effective in my classroom than just the mindfulness activities that I've done for years. So it sounds like to me then the the step further that it takes past mindfulness practices that it helps students become aware of their emotional state and then o- over time begin to get better at, at self-regulating. So it's not just getting better at, at self-regulating when they feel dysregulated, but as mind-body bridging practice deepens, they actually become dysregulated less and less often in the first place. So then the, the sensory practices become less important because they're doing things that that keep them from getting to that dysregulated place. And I think it helped help them become just more aware of why they're becoming dysregulated and their thoughts that, you know, are causing those kinds of things to happen and helping them have tools to be able to know what to do with those thoughts that they're having, I think is a big piece of it. They feel empowered, I think, yeah. to do something about what they're thinking and feeling, which would other than, you know, just the basic mindfulness stuff, which which is helpful to a degree, but this is this takes it much deeper. 
Well, I think what what you are what you both are talking about is every teacher's dream there of, of a student, you know, being able to recognize and then sort of uh, you know self strategize how they're going to to stay in a, a regular functioning state and and when they are dysregulated to get you know back into uh, regular functioning. So uh, the crux of the the mind body bridging is it talks about the the I system you know within the brain. So what is an I system and what are the trade offs between an overactive I system and a resting I system? The I system is was what I refer to as really a meta system. It's a mind body system that can accurately be located any in any one place or space within the mind or the body. But we do know from some early neuroscience research that that there's a connection between certain brain networks and eye system, what we would call eye system activity. But we, we just generally teach it as it's a mind-body system that we develop. Uh, we have to develop it as we grow up because it helps us develop this eye-centered reality, which helps us function in in our day-to-day -day environment the issue is not really with the eye system itself the eye system can't be fixed or eradicated it's it's not really to be viewed that way but i think it's most helpful to think about it as that that the, when the eye system causes trouble when it becomes dominant when it's the dominant mind body system at work it tends to override or mute other important mind-body systems that help us with our problem solving and emotional regulation. So that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's some pretty meaty neurocognitive science there. So how do you teach, you know, even as young as, you know, kindergarten through sixth graders, this this idea of of the eye system that, that sort of bridges the, the body and the mind? Well, maybe Cassie speak to more of the details there, but we've we've translated a lot of the heavy mind-body bridging language and terminology into some really simple concepts that kids can understand. Uh, we we refer to the I system state as small mind, and we refer to a rested I system state, which in mind-body bridging, when the I system is rested or made less dominant, our natural functioning. Uh, takes over and these other these other mind-body networks come online and so we refer to that state as big mind and so we for our part at the university we've really tried to reduce the terminology into something that kids can grasp we've we've benefited a lot from meetings with elementary teachers to help us to to get the language where it needs to be and so that's what we've done on our side is tried to make the terminology something that they can grasp. Yeah, so that's that is primarily what, you know, the terminology that we use for the I system is either you're in your small mind or your big mind. And kids have really, really grasped onto it. So what do those big mind behaviors and small mind behaviors look like for in the classroom for you, Cassie? If they're in their small mind, you know, that tends to be those kind of behaviors that you see a lot of times kids cry they yell, they become anxious, they ask questions over and over, they're afraid they won't get something right, they're unfocused, sometimes they make hurtful comments, sometimes they think they say unkind things about themselves. Um, and those we would all kind of, that would kind of let you know that that they are in their small mind, that that eye system is is dominant at that time. And I would just add on to that before she moves on to big mind is the 
you can always tell when the eye system is active in a child or any, you know, ourselves, when our focus is very self-referential. So the eye tube channel is on and instead of being connected to my external environment channels. What is the teacher teaching? What is what is happening? You know, what am I sensing with my senses? So anytime that student has drawn back into their own self-referential thinking, um, then then you know that they have it's their eye system or their small mind that's dominating right then. So Cassie, then what does what does big mind look like for you in the classroom? Um, I would say big mind is when they are just being able, Derek calls it meeting the imperative of the moment. So it doesn't mean that they're happy all the time. It doesn't mean, you know, that life is full of joy every second for them, but it just means that they are being their best selves that they can possibly be. So maybe if they're trying to solve a very difficult math problem, it would look like they're asking for help. They're not giving up on it. I would say in their small mind, you know, I have kids that will cry over that and I can't do it and maybe even throw their paper, throw their pencil or those would be kind of small mind behaviors where big mind behaviors would be, oh, I need to go and ask Mrs. T for some help and I'm going to ask her some questions about, you know, things I don't understand. It's just being their best selves in that moment that whatever that moment happens to call on for them. Being the word of, the, of the moment. In other words, they're solving the challenges that they're addressing the challenges that are right in front of them. And they're using their part of their brain that actually enjoys that, that, that enjoys meeting a challenge. Yeah, they're not becoming dysregulated over that challenge. And I, I do use that term in my classroom a lot. We talk about dysregulation and what if you're dysregulated what does that look like you know if if someone is dysregulated how do you know so that's a term that we do use because i i could never find a better term to use for it so they they know that and off task i think is yeah, another for sure if they're off task yeah in other words they're just not engaged in the moment that's in front of them then then you know small mind is is dominant so I found from my teaching, and I'm sure other teachers can attest to this, that you know every every teacher we will have students that are in small mind and big mind and at various points in different times. But you know when I have a student that's that's in their small mind, um, you know when I go in and sort of address it in that moment, especially if it's a really severe dysregulation, it's very hard, if not impossible, to sort of bring them you know out of that. So so Cassie, I'm curious in the classroom. What does it look like where where you're trying to shift students from their small mind to your to their big mind? What what practices do you use? Well, I think it's most important to try and be proactive and and use what in education we call front load. So try and front load them before they're dysregulated. You know, teaching those practices, having them constantly using their superpower senses will help them to be able to not be in their small minds as often. Now, if I do have a student who gets in their small mind, like you were describing, a lot of times I will pull them aside or pull them out in the hallway. And I actually do the superpower sense with them. And so, you know, I'll say, hey, let's just rub this brick. Come on, rub it with me, rub it with me. Let's just move your hand down the brick. And I'll start asking them questions like, is it bumpy? Is it smooth? Is it rough? Is it cold? Is it hot? 
and I kind of pepper them with those questions about their senses. And usually I would say 90, 95% of the time, they will calm down. They'll start asking or answering those questions. And eventually it's just like magic. It's, it's the craziest thing. They'll turn to me with a smile on their face and I'll say, Oh, okay. Are you in your big mind now? And, and then we can have a conversation about what their shoulds and musts were and how they got into their small mind in the first place. But you definitely, sometimes it takes just modeling right with them. I do this. I do it right with them to have them, to help them to get out of their small mind. So what does the mapping look like for, I know that's a major part of, um, of helping the students with mind-body bridging. How do you teach the students to do the, the first map and the second map and, and that progression between them? Well, that's been a trial and error this year. Initially, when I first started, you know, I kind of just started right in thinking that they would be able to do it and quickly had to realize I had to back out of that. So we basically have done the I do, we do, you do, maybe a partner do method in there where I will do a map, you know, about something that I'm worried about and, and model it for the kids and what it looks like and talk through that whole thing. And then we have spent a lot of time in my classroom doing maps together. So we would say, what would a typical fourth grader be worried about? You know, we would put that in the center of my map and then I'll say, okay, what are some thoughts they might have? And then we engage superpower senses and we do the very same thing um, on the, the two part, the other part of the map. Um, eventually now, I would say probably starting in like January, my kids now can totally do their own maps. But it did take some time and some practice and some modeling. And one really neat thing that I've shared with Derek is I've actually had some students now who will map at home they will have a problem and they have brought me their maps and they, they'll say, you know, I was having this problem. Maybe they were fighting with a sibling and, and they said, I sat down and I did a map, a two part map, Mrs. T and they'll bring me their maps. And that is just amazing for us. That is where, you know, we want them to get to, but it did, it takes some time. They have to, you know, learn how to do it. And so for the listeners out there that aren't familiar with, with, with making the map, um, can you walk us through, you know, so you did a little bit of the modeling of, you know, so what would a, I guess, walk us through what a first map would look like and then engaging the superpower senses and then, and the second map, just so teachers can sort of get an idea of, of the progression between them. Well, if we wanted, let's say that they're to the point where they can do their own map, but so you're supposed, they're supposed to put a concerning um, situation in the middle of their map. And it can be anything from my parents were fighting to I didn't get to be first in line. I mean, it can be anything that they're just kind of concerned about. Then they spend a little bit of time, maybe one to two minutes, and they just brainstorm thoughts about that concerning situation. And it's really, really important to never, ever judge their maps never judge. And, you know, you'll have kids who will say, I just don't know what to write down. And I'll say, well, you know, just try your best. Or sometimes I'll give you know some suggestions of what other kids are doing, but you never say, oh, you have to do this or you have to have that. So anyway, they, they brainstorm for a couple of minutes. We stop, we engage our superpower senses, which they have already learned about. Um, and sometimes we'll do a sense altogether, like I'll turn on some chimes or they can just choose whatever they like. 
And then we turn the paper over and they write the same concerning situation in the middle. And again, they just brainstorm about it. And I'm gonna let Derek talk more about what that does and what that what mm -hmm. that process is. Yeah, so so we we initially do the two part maps to help them begin to to discover what what their small mind state is like and what their natural functioning or big mind state is like. And so in the early going, that's really what we're trying to teach is this is what you, your mind, you know, and at the bottom of the map, we, we usually have them talk about what they're feeling in their body and where they're feeling it. You know, where are you feeling any body tension in your body or does your stomach hurt or because, you know, usually these things kind of manifest in the body um, for most of us. And so they're just becoming familiar of this is what it feels like when I'm in my small mind. And then we do the superpower senses and flip to map two. And it's really amazing actually that even after a minute and a half of engaging their superpower senses to see the differences between map one and map two, they're not always different. And it's important, as Cassie said, to to teach mapping in such a way that there's we're not looking for a particular answer. There is no particular answer. It's a process. And so as they come to trust that there isn't a right answer and they just do what comes to them, they get more comfortable with the mapping. But you know, that second map is it's just it's just kind of amazing what happens as they as they engage their full mind-body networks. And the way we describe it is usually people start to see the same troubling situation in a much more expansive way. So rather than kind of in a tunnel vision, either ors, uh, you know, catastrophe kinds of outcomes that are typical of small mind thinking, big mind thinking opens their view to many more possibilities. And it just sort of makes the thing seem much more manageable. There's, I've seen some examples of maps that, that Cassie's kids have done. And I'll always remember the one, the one that one of her kids did where the troubling situation um, was my parents are divorcing or splitting up. And map one was what you would expect to see, you know, I, What's going to happen? Who am I going to live with? How's this going to work? I'm tired of them yelling. Um, you know, I, I feel I feel sick to my stomach and just all the stuff around that map. And then on map two, same troubling situation. My parents are splitting up and there was just simply the words, I can handle this. And that was it. That was all that was on the second side of the map. And there's lots of examples of kids maps where they can make that flip really quickly. And I might add, while I'm thinking about it, kids make that, that flip much faster than adults who have more deeply entrenched identity systems. So kids really take to this and can flip quickly from yeah. one to the other. Yeah, I'll add on to that. I know that you know when I have talked to my other colleagues, about the mind-body bridging, we're just so cynical <laughs> and skeptical. But kids, they just like believe you. 
they just do it and they believe it and it becomes part of their life. And it, it is so much easier for kids to do than adults. One thing when I was learning about the about mind-body bridging, uh, when I learned this concept, it really made so much of what, what I was learning click. And, and that was the small mind story. So Derek, what is a small mind story and, and why does so much hinge on us being able to successfully diffuse those small mind stories to stay in our, our big mind state? Yeah, small mind stories are really the fuel that keeps the identity system active or dominant. So as long as the story is running, um, the identity system will remain dominant. So the story is is really about how am I going to make what we call my identity system requirement, or in the language of our elementary school model, our should must, how are we going to make the should must come true? So it's an identity system requirement or a small mind should must that sets off the small mind story. For example, let's just choose, um, I must be first in line to recess, which is surprisingly a, a frequent trigger I'm, I'm learning in many kids. I must be first in line. And so that inevitably is not going to always come to pass. You're not going to always be first in line. But if that's my should must, that I, it must be that way because that's that's what I'm about. That's what my identity system says has to happen in order for me to maintain my sense of self. And it doesn't happen, then it triggers a small mind story. So a small mind story about recess might be, I never get to be first in line to anything. I, I, I'm always picked last. I never get to go first. My, my teacher hates me. That's mm -hmm. why I never get to go. Yep. Nobody likes me in this class. Nobody I don't have me. any friends. Yeah. And they just go on and on and on. And so there's a couple problems with that. One is that obviously it continues to keep the, the identity system as the dominant mind body system. The other thing is, is that as long as a child is spending their energy on the story they're not engaged in the moment they're not in meeting the meeting the imperative of the moment so they're stuck in a past moment trying to figure out how to make that moment come to pass at some point or trying to write a story about why it didn't and and so it just it just keeps them in that space of not being productive, not being their super self, their best self, and obviously comes with a great deal of emotional dysregulation in, in a lot of kids. So Cassie, how do you teach students to recognize these small mind stories and then successfully diffuse them? Well, the manual that they have um, developed at the university, I just pretty much went through that. And then it was just a lot of practice and if my students become dysregulated, like I said, if I have to take them out in the hall and actually help them to get back into their big mind, then we do spend a few minutes after and we talk about, okay, what was your should must? And of course, I've taught this pretty explicitly, you know, what a should must is and talked a lot about it. But yeah, we, we talk about that. And my kids, I don't know, they just have picked up on it so fast. They'll even... If somebody says something out loud, like if they were hap they happen to say, 
I should be first in line, immediately one of my students will call them out and say, that sounds like a small mind story to me. And it's just helping them to recognize that. It's tough, you know, it's a definitely a higher metacognitive skill, um, but it they can do it, mm -hmm. but it does take practice and it takes work. And one of the things that we really talk about in my class too is what are their body cues to let them know that they need to like hurry and engage a superpower sense. So some of my students will say that they clench their fists. They know that's their body cue or they get a lump in their throat. So maybe they have this should or must and they feel that lump in their throat. Then they know they should get engaged their superpower senses. And then they should start thinking about what was my should or must. But, you know, it, it takes some time and some practice, but they really can do it. Yeah, yeah, they, they pick up on it pretty quickly. And it's important for the listeners to understand that this is all kind of scaffold through mapping processes as we teach kids. So we start with the basic two-part maps to help them understand the difference between their, their small mind and big mind states. And then we continue to use those maps to help them identify their should musts and then to help them identify the stories that they tell themselves when their should musts are are driving the the show so it, it is it does sound like a lot and it is kind of heavy but um but it's really taught in a stepwise fashion and 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 the maps are used all throughout so the map remains a constant tool that they use well, and I'll just chip in there that recognizing and diffusing small mind stories isn't just for students. That's something that's been super beneficial for me is to recognize when I'm sort of feeding myself that story and then, you know, ah, well, you know, what else is new? Or, you know what, that's a small mind story or, you know, just even little things that I can mention to myself has, has helped me, you know, not get, not let myself drag myself into those sort of round and round we go brain conversations. So, so you mentioned, Derek, that, you know, all of this is is scaffolded over, you know, the course of a year and that it takes time for students to get proficient at this, just like any other skill. So what does this look like sort of from, what, what does that scope look like over the course of time with starting from introducing small mind, big mind to helping students, um, you know, self-regulate? What, what, what does that scaffolding look like over time? Well, I think it, I think it can be done. You know, I'm just thinking about how we've rolled that out in your classroom and some of the other classrooms I've been working with. But, you know, I think we, you started to do this around October of the current academic year. And I would say by, by January, uh, around the holiday break, they had, they had the basic skills down. And, and now Cassie does kind of a big mind Monday where they go in and, and these are really short she can talk more about this, but just really short check-ins on certain of those skills and reviewing the skills. And, and the kids just start to practice it on their own. And then of course, as a child becomes dysregulated every now and then, you know, you can use in the manual, we call them like these little one minute interventions that teachers can do um, throughout the school year. But well, I mean, the kids just start to use it. And now in this interesting time of of not meeting in person with the students and Cassie's established this kind of pen pal correspondence with her students and 
she just got a, a card in the mail today or recently from a student that it was so cute it it had a it had some big mind small mind stuff on the card and she had even poked the little it was an index card wasn't yeah. it she had poked holes in the index card because she was saying this is this is something you can rub these little dots in this index card to engage your superpower senses. I don't know if you. It was so say. cute. Yeah, it said things like, you know, um, we can get through this. Mrs. T's class can get through anything. And then she had all five of the senses listed with things you could do if you were stressed. Plus the little um, pokey things on there that I could feel if I wanted. And I will say that my little pen pal thing that's going on right now. I would say at least. Ooh, probably half to three quarters of the letters that I'm getting have in every letter, there is something in there about their superpower senses. They'll tell me what their favorite one is. They'll tell me anyway, I would say about three quarters of them, at least a piece of their letters that are coming to me say something about their superpower senses, which is really fun. And this is unsolicited. Completely right? unsolicited. Yeah, I mean, she hasn't yeah. asked them to do, to, to report on any of it. They're just doing it spontaneously. Yeah. On my Zoom meeting this morning, it was really fun. One of my students, his little brother was screaming in the background and he was so cute. He said, I just want to apologize because right, my little brother, he just, he has a hard time. He's just in his small mind a lot. He just really has a hard time being present in the moment. His emotions get out of control. And I've been at night before we go to sleep, I've been having him practice his superpower senses to help him. But he's in his small mind right now. And that's why he's screaming. <laughs> and anyway, it's just become part of our it's part of our language now in my class. It's part of who we are. Mm -hmm. Teachers are busy, Cassie. And there's always kind of the feeling of there's going to be one more thing that, that someone's going to add on to my plate. And, and rarely does stuff kind of get taken off. So Cassie, how have you integrated this in your classroom in, in such a way that it doesn't feel like one more thing, that it just becomes the, the culture of the classroom? You know, at the beginning of the year, we I did have to set aside some time to explicitly teach those lessons. And like Derek said, now, you know, we do big, do, do big Mind Monday, where I kind of review the lessons, we review some different things. Um, but it has just become part of our language. And I don't really feel like it's me as much it is, as it is the kids. The kids, it just makes sense to them. And all of a sudden, these emotions that they were having, they can put a name to it and they can understand what, what they are and what they need to do about it. And I know I'm a teacher too. I've been a teacher for almost 20 years. And that is always my first reaction to anything like this is I don't have time. You know, I'm have to cut something else out to put something else in. But I would say after those first initial lessons, the time is just nothing. It's just normal talking to kids. It's just the way we talk to each other now. It's not anything different than, you know, other conversations I would have with them. It's just that our focus is different. And I would also suggest that if, you know, especially teachers who are listening to this, if they're skeptical or they're kind of like, I don't know if it's worth it, please try it yourself first. You know, the biggest buy-in comes on, comes by seeing if you think that this really does work. And just like you shared your experience with, you know, diffusing some of your small mind thoughts, 
and seeing you, you got to try it, try it out. And maybe Derek can talk more about that a little bit, but I think the buy-in comes from trying it yourself and seeing if it works in your life and then the value that you'll see, hopefully you'll want to give to your students. Yeah. I, and I'll just say, as far as the initial time to teach it, we, we've organized our manual in five sections. So it's five sections that you go through. And I would say it probably would take, what, 20 minutes to teach a section to a yeah, class? Yeah, it, it kind of depends on so which section So maybe 20 to 30 minutes uh, for the section. So the whole thing's been designed because I'm married to a teacher and one of my co-authors is married to a teacher. We we got we clearly understood this has to be fast and and so we think we've made it about as fast as it can be. Um, our training of teachers uh, when 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 schools invite us in to train them, we just ask them to set aside about an hour uh, a day for five sessions. And um, I think you you know Jake you went through those and so it's it is a little bit of time, but it's not. It's not like long lasting and forever about five hours of training and you as a teacher are ready to give it a go. And, and I would add that it's, you know, a bit of an investment that, you know, where going through the time at, at front, you know, you sort of yield that on the back end where you have a common language that you can use with your students and you can, you know, just a, it's almost just a viewpoint for them to help them see the world and understand themselves, which I think is, is very valuable to have everyone on the same page in the classroom of, you know, we, we our goal is we want to be in our in our big mind and and here's our roadmap of how we're going to get there and we're going to help each other when we're in our small mind. And I, I think that's really powerful as, you know, like anything else, it takes time to get it rolling, but I think the dividends pay off over time. Well, we talk a lot, you know, in education about we want the students to be self-directed learners. And of course, there's some steps that take, they have to take to be able to do that, but we want them to, to take ownership of their learning. And well, we also want them to take ownership of their emotional health and their mental health. And this program really helps them do that. And I know it's difficult to fit one more thing in, but I think, especially in the world we live in today and some of the things that these kids go through, they need that almost more than the academic um, piece of education. They need to know how do I do I take control of my mental health? Because obviously that they have to have control of that before the academic piece can be there. Yeah. I love that. Um, what mind frames or tips would you suggest for teachers that are looking to implement mind body bridging in the classroom? Um, like I said, I would absolutely encourage them to try it themselves. Try it, maybe read, maybe Derek can talk about the Come to Your Senses book. Um, read that book, implement it in your own life and see if you are a believer in it, in, in the system and in it helping to regulate your emotions. Because I think the more that you try it, the more you'll be able to see that it is something that would be really worthwhile for everybody to have, especially your students. We have a student or a teacher at our school that she was kind of, you know, unsure of the system too. And after she had done the training and she came back to one of the recaps kind of after she was like, those superpower senses are like magic. And that's because she had tried it. But, and sometimes that's all it takes is a little bit of, of trying. 
Excellent. So, Dr. Tolson, where can they, where can our listeners go to learn more about uh, mind-body bridging? Yeah, they can go to our our website, uh, which is i-system.usu.edu. They can kind of get an overview of mind-body bridging there and see some of the things that we're doing. You can go to the research page and look at some of that, some of those references. But if you want to get the book called Come to Your Senses by Stan, Dr. Stan and Carolyn Block, they are the developers of the mind-body bridging model. And it is it is, uh, I think, explicated pretty simply in the book called Come to Your Senses, Demystifying the Mind-Body Connection. So I think you can get it on Amazon still for about 12 bucks or something like that. Thank you both so much uh, for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast today. What do you both think it means to make a good teacher? Wow. Um, I think first and foremost, passion for what you're doing. I mean, this is this really hard work. I'm I'm just especially in awe at at what the the elementary teachers do on a day in, day out basis. I, I mean I teach college and and it has its challenges, but just nothing like what what you all do. You you work miracles, I think, every day. Um, and I think the, the thing that allows you to do it is is just you have such passion and love for these kiddos. So I guess I'll, I'll take that as my answer. <laughs> um, I would just say that um, a good teacher means that you just love and value each one of those as kids in your class as individuals. I heard a quote or saw, read a quote or something a few years ago and it said, everybody needs a biggest fan. And a lot of kids in schools don't have a biggest fan. They don't have someone cheering them on and, you know, thinking everything they, that they can just accomplish anything. And I think that a good teacher has to fill that biggest fan role for a, a lot of their students. And even if they do have, you know, parents who are big fans of theirs and all of that, I don't think anything replaces a teacher being their biggest fan. I really, really don't. And I think it's a lifelong thing. I think you probably you can remember, probably Derek can remembers, remember, sorry. I know I can remember a fourth grade teacher that I also had again in sixth grade who was my biggest fan. And I still remember him. And I still think if I ran into him, in fact, I have a few times, I think he is still my biggest fan. So I think that's what a good teacher is. I think they are their kids' biggest fan. Derek and Cassie Tolson, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. What a fantastic conversation. A great big thank you to Dr. Derek and Cassie Tolson for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I had a fantastic conversation with them and really uh, enjoyed learning more about uh, mind-body bridging. So here are my two cents on what I talked about um, with, with Derek and Cassie. So my first one is, this is a rare episode. In fact, we never mention in this episode fluency or comprehension or phonics or any other construct of reading. But despite this, I want to connect why I feel this episode fits so plainly into the scope of the show of, of teaching literacy better. 
One of my favorite quotes uh, is by Henry David Thoreau, and it's it's one of his more popular ones, so you've probably heard it before, but uh, for every thousand hacking at the branches of evil, there is one that is striking at the root. So when we talk about mind-body bridging, that is something that I feel is really striking at the root of how we can help students become better learners within the classroom. In education, we know that students who have stress or anxiety or trauma and those are basically all just small mind behaviors manifested, all of those things can negatively influence educational performance. And every educator has seen students going through rough patches or coming from traumatic backgrounds that have underperformed in the classroom. And that can be heart-wrenching. So as classroom teachers, we, we can't fix their lives, but we can help give them the tools to help them succeed in our classroom and hopefully that will also transfer to outside the classroom as well. Teaching big mind, small mind is one way that we can do that for our students. We all have times when our small mind is running the show and talking a million miles an hour. And when that happens, we are not meeting the imperative of the moment. This is every one of your students, from the kid who's upset that they spilled grape jam on them during breakfast, to the kid who lives a life of neglect on a daily basis. The point here is that if we can give students the skills to recognize when they are dysregulated and then also help give them the tools to get them from a dysregulated state to a regulated state or from a small mind state into a big mind state, we are giving them a skill that will not only benefit them in your classroom because they will be able, able to better access the curriculum, but we're also giving them something that could potentially, very well potentially, benefit them outside the classroom as well. And so that the two of those potentially have the ability to alter the trajectory of their lives. So it absolutely fits within the scope of our Teaching Literacy podcast uh, because it's going a little bit deeper than just reading. It's, it's helping the student being able to better function within your classroom, which I think is something we'd all like for our, our students. That is all that I have for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Again, I wish you health and the best of luck throughout this pandemic. And until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better. Thanks for listening to our conversation today. Remember to check out the show notes for more details. If you have feedback or a show idea, feel free to email me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's go and teach literacy just a little bit better.